It says, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, saying, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And Father, we humbly ask that as we're together this morning, assembled for worship as well in this place, that you would help us to have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church through this particular section of your written and inspired word you've given to us, that we would listen, Lord, and that we would be able to hear what your spirit is trying to say to each one of us. Bless your word and may your spirit be our teacher and our instructor. And we ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, whenever God speaks, it is critically important for us to listen and not just to listen, but to make sure that we then respond properly as well. And really, as we go through our text this morning, we're going to see that's really the main lesson in our passage that's going to teach us today that we need to listen when God is seeking to speak to us. What we get this morning in Acts chapter 13 is really the first recorded sermon in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul. We have a few of his sermons. This is the first one we come to. And it's likely, we can't be certain, but likely a condensed version of a more thorough and lengthy teaching. Uh, kind of the bullet points or uh, the abbreviated version of the comments that Paul made, but yet still very effective in what's conveyed here to us. Remember the background at this point, we saw in Acts chapter 13 is this passage opened there in the chapter that at this point, God has now called Paul and Barnabas and commissioned them for their missionary journeys. They've been sent out by the Holy Spirit on this first missionary journey. They've done some initial ministry on the island of Cyprus. And then after completing some ministry there, they then sailed across the Mediterranean Sea over to the area of Perga in Pamphylia, which is what we would call today modern Turkey. So that's the location where they're not now at this time. Verse 14 picks up, if you'll draw your attention there with me, by telling us, and when they had then departed from Perga, they came to the area of Antioch in Pisidia. So this describes them leaving the coastal area of Perga. They're in this area, as I said, that's kind of the modern day Turkey. They leave the coastal territory and they head now, it says, up and they're traveling in elevation now to Antioch Pisidia. Now, again, here we get another different Antioch. This is not Antioch where the church is at. Uh, that's a different Antioch where they were at. This is Antioch Pisidia, and this is an area we know more commonly as the region of Galatia. We have the epistle or letter of Galatians in our New Testament. It's to this area, the believers there, that Paul was writing that particular letter. Antioch Pisidia is about 100 miles north of Perga, way up in the highlands. It's about, about 3,500 feet in elevation. And it was a difficult area to reach because it was kind of a, a, a mountainous area. You had to kind of go through some ranges and climb upward those 3,500 feet in elevation. The area below it was marshy swampland. Land, and it was known to be a breeding ground for malaria in that day. 
Now, that's interesting because it's likely that this is how Paul became sick during his first missionary journey. And we know from the book of Galatians, and this is the area that he's in, from the book of Galatians in chapter 4, Paul reminds the believers there that the reason he preached the gospel to them was because of physical infirmity or because of some sickness or health issue. In other words, it seems that Paul was trying to say to them, remember, the main reason I brought the gospel to you was because of some illness that I was struggling with. So putting those pieces together, it's likely that Paul, as he arrives in the area of Perga here, likely contracted malaria in that area that was known for that and wanted to get his team out of that area before things got worse. So that's probably what precipitated them making the decision to make this arduous journey up the mountainous area to the area of Antioch, Pisidia, trying to get to higher ground to keep ministering. And with illness as his incentive, he now moves northward up into this new area. And as a result of that, the gospel reaches the area of Galatia. Again, don't tell me that God can't use illness. Because Paul tells the region of Galatia, the reason the gospel came to you was I got sick. I think sometimes the reason that people get saved in hospitals or hear about Jesus in nursing homes or so is because of health issues. Sometimes God uses illness and human infirmity to kind of make us medical missionaries. Uh, if we go in realizing, okay, Lord, you put me here, so uh, maybe there's somebody, a doctor, a nurse that needs to hear about Jesus and great opportunity. Paul used that uh, as an occasion to preach the gospel as he moved out of that area to try and get to higher ground. Again, all these circumstantial difficulties, the illness, the hard travel conditions, you know, uh, the rugged uh, effort it took to get up north to where he was could have been also why John Mark departed from the missionary team and went back home to Jerusalem. Remember, we saw that in our last verse, uh, verse 13 last week, that John departed from the team. This could be the reason why, that the malaria, the rugged conditions, Paul saying, look, we need to get to higher ground and, and, and the hardship of those things that Mark looked at that and just said, you know what? I don't know if I signed up for all this. I don't know if I'm in for all of that, and that could be why Mark went back home. So here's Paul. He's plugging up a mountain, preaching with a malaria, and John's saying, nah, that's a little bit too tough for me. I think I'm going to go back home. And this could be the very reason why Paul, again, was so stirred in his spirit to say we are not bringing him with us again because he abandoned us on the first trip. Now, let me just say this as a, as a sidelight. At the end of Paul's life, he says, bring Mark with you because he is useful to me for ministry. So Mark rebounded. So we want to we make that clear. He did ultimately grow up and mature and he came back around and God restored him and made him useful again. So upon arriving to this area, verse 14 goes on to tell us they then went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Again, the Sabbath day is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It was the day that the Jews ceased from their labors and assembled for worship. And it says they entered the synagogue, which again was a house of worship, a gathering place for the Jews. And Paul being Jewish, having a heart for the Jews, wanting to reach the Jews and knowing that he had connection with them, understanding their customs, familiar with synagogue worship, he would often go first to the synagogue. 
Paul also knew very wisely that the Jews have a phenomenal foundation. They had an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies. And so therefore, in Paul's mind, this was a great launching pad in his estimation. Hey, they're already halfway there. I want to try and help them recognize that Jesus is the Messiah that God sent, that he's the savior that was sent by God to bring salvation. So verse 15 says, as they go into the synagogue and sit down, that after the reading, verse 15, of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue spoke to Paul and Barnabas, his men or whoever else was with them, saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So a customary opportunity is presented now to Paul and Barnabas who are visiting rabbis and maybe likely known because of uh, Paul's popularity from the days that he was Saul of Tarsus. And now this opportunity takes place because of the protocol of worship in the synagogue. Typically, when they gathered for synagogue worship, a few things happened. Prayers were lifted up to God. There would always be readings, as you can see here, from the law, and then readings as well from the prophetic books. And then typically a teaching was given as well, and either an exposition or some exhortation or explanation of the passages that were read. And if a respected rabbi or a visiting teacher was present that day or in the area, oftentimes they would be given an invitation to share their insights. And so that's what we see taking place here. The invitation is extended to Paul and Barnabas. Hey, if you have some exhortation upon the text that we've just read that you'd like to give to us, say on, speak to us. And I'm sure Paul at that moment thought right on. Be glad to tell you what I think about that. And so now this opportunity is given. And remember, Paul understands that much of what it's written in the law and the prophets foreshadowed the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in the New Testament continually points out that reality, how the Old Testament revealed Christ and foreshadowed him in so many ways. These sections of scripture pointed to the life work of Jesus and his ministry and his death and his resurrection to reveal such. In fact, Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road, it tells us this, as Jesus himself and his resurrected body walked with his disciples, it says, beginning at Moses, the law, and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So very interesting. Jesus himself, understanding the law and the prophets, revealed him and spoke about him, gave a Bible study that day to point out his life and him within these passages of scripture. So verse 16 then tells us that Paul, given this invitation, stood up motioning with his hand saying men of Israel and you who fear God those would be Gentile God fearers he says listen so Paul stands up he lifts his hands moves them around to gain the attention of those present and then he exhorts both the Jews who were present as well as the God-fearing Gentiles who had a respect for God and his exhortation first word there is listen pay attention he says Listen to what I'm about to say. And can I say that's a good thing? Because when a sermon is delivered, not just because I'm delivering one right now, it is a good thing when a sermon is being delivered, God's word is being expressed, to not just hear words being spoken, but to actually listen to what God may be trying to say to you. 
and not just say, oh, I've heard that passage before, or when is this done, what time is lunch, or, but to actually say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, speak, your servant's listening. What do you want to say to me? What do I need to hear for my life? Now, in this sermon Paul's going to give from verse 17 through 41, he's going to stand up and speak to them, giving a brief history of the people of Israel to show them how through their people, God brought salvation. He brought the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice the first emphasis we'll see here in this message is how God was continually gracious to his people. That's Paul's first emphasis, how God was continually gracious to his people. And again, what's grace? It's the kindness, the favor, the blessing of God to undeserving recipients. And he's going to say, this is what God has been to us continuously. Verse 17, the sermon begins. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. So verse 17, he describes three major historical events there. He moves quite quickly through history. He describes three major events in Israel's history. First of all, that though they were unworthy, that God chose Abraham and his family line to be the recipients of the promises of God and to become the chosen people. The God of Israel chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He secondly mentions how though the people were sinful in their actions, God still blessed them and showed favor upon them amongst the land of Egypt as they dwelt there. He says the God of our fathers exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And the reason God favored and blessed them in Egypt predominantly was because of their connection to Joseph a type of Jesus. And because they knew Joseph, who became a prominent ruler there, they were exalted and blessed and treated well as a people in Egypt. And then the third event he mentions is that though they were slaves ultimately in Egypt to a cruel master, God sent them Moses as a deliverer to bring them out of Egypt, to set them free and bring salvation from their enslaved condition to bring them into a blessed life. Verse 18, he goes on to say, now for a time of about 40 years, he, that's God, then put up with their ways in the wilderness. So again, due to their unbelief and rebellion, you remember the history, they spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. And we know from the Old Testament that though they were wandering in the wilderness due to their rebellion and unbelief, God still guided them. He still worked among them. He still took care of them and provided for them. And yet those 40 years were characterized by many occasions, were they not, of the people dishonoring God, you know, just disobeying God. And, and again, they were marked by times of the people of God complaining and, and entering into idolatry and different forms of sin and rebellion and unbelief towards God. And yet, nonetheless, though they provoked God repeatedly, look at verse 18. He says, for 40 years, God put up with their ways. For 40 years, God put up with their ways. Look, let's be candid. A lot of times we can't even put up with somebody obnoxious for 40 minutes. And we want to strangle them. And we actually think we're entitled to. I have a few times. For 40 years. Years, 
the God of love and all creation put up with the ways of rebellious, ungrateful, sinful, disobedient, disrespectful people who were disregarding his authority, spitting in his face, complaining about what... For 40 years, 40 years, God endured the heartache and the unkind treatment and remained merciful and patient, tolerant. But look, if we're honest, think how God has put up with our ways at times in our lives. Maybe that season in your life when God was really putting up with your ways and he was putting up with what you did for a season and yet God mercifully restrained and man talk about amazing grace that God put up with your ways that God put up with my ways and was merciful and patient and gave us time to come to our senses. Well, verse 19, he says, and then when God had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So he recalls the days of Joshua now, how they conquered and then inherited God's promised land, the land of Canaan, how though they engaged in battles, it was the Lord who gave them the victory. He was destroying their enemies. They were taking the steps of faith, but it was the power of God that was graciously enabling them to overcome. And it was God who then blessed them, distributing the land to them by allotment. God was as a gift, giving them abundant life experiences there in the promised land. He says, and after that, he then gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So this describes the long period of the judges. Notice over four centuries, that period lasted quite an extensive time when the judges were due to the people's sinfulness again and repeated rebellion. Remember the characterizing mark of the time of the judges historically with Israel? It says it was a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Let me give you the definition of that. That means that they were redefining morality. Everybody's estimation was, if it feels right to me, don't tell me that it's wrong. If it's what I want to do, don't tell me that it's inappropriate. If it's right in my eyes, it's okay, and you need to accept that. And everybody had the freedom to define what was right in their own eyes. And this continual cycle, remember, happened of the people turning away from God and then suffering as a result and then God would intervene graciously to save them. Uh, the pattern kind of went like this, the cycle for 400 years. The people would rebel and then as they would rebel against God, God would allow them to be vulnerable. Their enemies would conquer them and they would suffer the consequences of their sin. Then the people would regret what they did. And then when they were miserable and unhappy and in slavery to cruel masters, they would start to want help. God, get us out of this. So then the people would begin to reach out to God in their humbled condition. They cry out, save us, God. Get us out of this. God, if you save us, we'll never do this again. God, just what do we get us out of this? This is horrible. And what would God do? God would graciously step in and he'd rescue them. He'd raise up these judges who were basically like little deliverers or saviors in some sort who would intervene on God's behalf, set the people free and lead the people back into a time of peace and righteousness to some degree. And then the people would return back to rebellion and the process would go all over again. 
And this cycle went on for over four centuries, repeated until the godly prophet Samuel was sent by God and used to lead a spiritual revival. Verse 21 says, and then afterward, they then asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for another 40 years. So again, how did they get Saul? The people rejected God's authority. They rejected God's rulership and said, we don't want God as our king. We need a real king like all the other nations. This thing of one nation under God, I mean, that, that, that's, that, that can't work. We need a human king. We need somebody with some ideas and good policies. So like all the other nations, get us a king. And so they rejected God, wanted a human king, and God, saddened by their refusal of him, still gave the people what they wanted. God allowed them to have what they asked for. So they, he gave to them Saul, the kind of king that they wanted. And remember, in receiving what they wanted, they also experienced the consequences of having their own way because Saul was a miserable leader. And Saul brought nothing but problems and ministry to, uh, misery to them and misguided them and forced God to do what? Intervene again. And once again, then God had to intervene to spare the people because of what they chose in asking for King Saul. So verse 22 says, and then when God had removed him, that's Saul, he then raised up for them David as a king to whom he also gave the testimony of David saying, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So God removes the fleshly choice of King Saul and God gives them his divine intention, a king who had a heart after him, who would love the people and serve the people and leading them as God's representative. David gets this beautiful description as God looked upon him as a man after God's own heart. And the idea there to be after God's own heart, it's the same way if, you know, as a person, we may say sometimes maybe somebody likes the same food as us or they like to do things the same ways and say, man, that's a man after my own heart right there. Well, this is the idea. God was saying he has the same heart towards things that I do. He has the same perspective, the same value system. He wants to do things the way I would do things. He wants to do things the way that matter to me. This was the description of David having a, a, a heart after God. And he says, therefore, David desires to do all my will. David wasn't a perfect man. But one thing you can say about David is David didn't seek to advance his own agenda. David lived that God might be honored. David never wanted the limelight. He never wanted the glory. He was flawed. He made his mistakes. He wasn't perfect. But David always wanted to see God's agenda advanced, not his own. He wanted to see God's will be done and God's purposes fulfilled. Verse 23 says, and then from this man's seed, he now comes to David, according to the promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7, God raised up for Israel, he says, a savior Jesus. So from David's family line, as God promised to David that through his lineage, that one of his sons the Messiah would come to Israel, the Christ, the Savior, God promised, and that's exactly how and through what line Jesus of Nazareth came, the Savior. And let me just say, God raising up and sending a Savior, that was the pinnacle of God's grace right there. He says, this is the pinnacle after all this description from verse 17 down of what the people did and God, he says, the pinnacle of God's grace is this, is that God raised up for Israel a savior to spare them 
from the consequences of their foolish decisions and evil acts at times. Matthew 1 says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. His mother Mary, betrothed to Joseph before they came together, was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Listen, and Joseph, being her husband, a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away. But while he thought about these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, saying, Joseph, son of David. Joseph, did you forget whose son you are? You're the son of David. That child in Mary's womb is the Messiah. The prophecy said that through David's line, I would send the Messiah into the world. Joseph, do you realize you are in the line of the Messiah and so therefore take her to be your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So God now comes through Paul here to the important point, of course, of any sermon, the Savior Jesus. And now Paul wants to validate the life of Jesus before the people that he's speaking to, to show how God spoke so clearly and repeatedly about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, hoping that people would easily be able to recognize Jesus and that they would never miss God's Savior. So verse 24, he says, And after then John, the Baptist, we know that's referencing, had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So as the prophet Malachi predicted, God sent a forerunner to come before the Messiah ahead of him to basically announce the Savior before he came. That messenger to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord was John the Baptist. We see his ministry in the early Gospels. And before Jesus came, John preached that people should repent, that they should turn from their sin and ready themselves to receive the Savior when he showed up shortly afterwards. Matthew chapter 3 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. The time has come. He was announcing that Jesus was soon arriving as the Savior. And verse 25 says, As John was finishing his course, he then said himself, who do you think that I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. So notice John, as we see his ministry, he continually deflected any glory being given to him. John the Baptist was always trying to defer people looking to him and he kept trying to point people to Jesus. He kept trying to get people's eyes on the Lord. John did not want people being impressed with him. John wanted people to have an encounter with Jesus themselves. This was John's ministry as the forerunner. John said, look, I am no one of importance. Who do you think I am? He's, I'm not anybody of importance, he says. He says, in fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the dirty sandal strap of this man who is coming after me that is so much greater than I am. But John said, look what he says there. He says, but behold, there is one coming after me and he is who you need to behold. He is who you need to focus upon. John chapter one tells us that when John saw Jesus walking towards him before the people, John looked at him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said, he won't just cover your sin, he can remove your sin. 
He can take away the sin of the whole world. And I love that verse 25 says that as John was finishing his course, he did these things. Again, how did John complete or finish his course? By effectively connecting people to the Lord Jesus. That's how you can finish your course. That's how you complete any good relationship or interaction or conversation. If by the end of it, you can connect people to Jesus, you've done a good job and walk away. You really don't, I really don't want people connected to us because we're just going to fail them. We can't save people. We can't give them power to change. We want to connect people to Jesus. When we've done that, we've completed our job. We've finished our course when we connected them to Jesus himself. So Paul says, verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you, he says, this word of the salvation has been sent. So notice Paul personalizes these wonderful realities talking about to his listeners present. That's why he says in verse 26 there, to you, this understanding of God's salvation has been sent. And what Paul's trying to do there in the text, in the sermon, is he's trying to impress upon his listeners the need of personal response to what God was saying to them directly in that given moment as God was speaking. He's saying to them, listen, you, his listeners, you have heard God's word spoken to you this day. You have heard, and he says, so God now holds you accountable for responding to what he's just told you personally. And look, as I said earlier, this is important because we can and will either receive or reject what God is saying to us. We all have the capacity to decide. When God speaks, how we respond to God's voice is crucial. In fact, more than that, it's life-altering. It is something that can change our eternal destiny and has eternal consequence and is so important when God speaks to us, again, that we're not just hearing words, but we're actually listening to what God says. What's God trying to say? You know, you, you perhaps may be here this morning and you're here bodily and you're hearing words, but you're not even interested in what God's trying to say to you. Maybe you want to hear something for your spouse so you can jab them or tell them later. What do you think about that point? Look, God doesn't need you to preach a second sermon. The Holy Spirit can do his job. We should be saying, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? You're God. If you want to say something to me, what are you trying to say to me? And so Paul says, listen, to you, to you, he's personal, to you, this word of God's salvation has been sent. He's now going to illustrate an example of how others rejected God's voice and he doesn't want them to make the same mistake. And that's what he'll go on now with verse 27. He says, for those who dwell in Jerusalem, he says, and the rulers, the religious leaders, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they have fulfilled them in condemning him and condemning Jesus. So look, those who heard and were aware of God's written word probably more than anybody else at that time, he says they were the ones who made the mistake of ignoring what God was trying to say and speak to them. He refers to the Jewish religious capital of Jerusalem and then the rulers, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And he says they continually heard, he says, verse 27, they continually heard every week the prophecies of the Old Testament read to them every Sabbath. 
The point Paul's making is they sat respectfully and they heard sermon after sermon after sermon. They heard the text and the scriptures read to them week after week after week and they listened and heard the words but they never really paid attention and listened to what God was trying to say to them through the whole process. And he said, therefore, their hearts were dull spiritually. They were disinterested. They were distracted. And they were honoring God with their lips in the meeting. But their hearts were far from him. It was sort of in one ear and out the other ear. It was sort of hearing the noise, but missing the voice of God and shutting out what God was trying to say. And as a result, they failed to know and experience the truth of God's word for themselves. So therefore, when Jesus came, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't recognize Jesus because their hearts were dull. Their fleshly desires wanted a political military Messiah who'd overthrow the the nation of Rome and, and give them a more blessed and prosperous life. And they weren't aware of the fact of their own spiritual need that they were sinful people before a holy God and that they didn't need deliverance from Rome. They needed deliverance from sin. They needed deliverance from judgment for their own sins against God and that what they first needed was a humble Savior to come and lovingly die in their place and raise from the dead to set them free from slavery to sin and the bondage that they were in. The failure to hear what God was saying resulted in the people erring severely in their actions. In fact, sadly, verse 27 here tells us they actually became guilty of fulfilling the very prophecies they heard read to them about rejecting the Messiah. So they heard these prophecies read that the Messiah would be refused, ignored, despised, and rejected. And he says they actually ended up fulfilling those very prophecies themselves. They actually ended up being the ones that did those things. Verse 28, Paul says, and though they found no cause for death in Jesus, that is because he was sinless, they asked Pilate, however, that he should be put to death. So though there was no legitimate cause for Jesus to die, the people still falsely accused him. And in their spiritual blindness, they asked the Roman ruler to put him to death, shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Isaiah 53 predicted this reality would happen, that he, the Messiah, would be despised and rejected of men. It said, a man of sorrows, and we esteemed him not. Again, their very prophecy said they would do this, and then they were the very ones asking for him to be put to death, Jesus, when he came. Verse 29 says, now when they had then fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they then took him down from the tree, from the cross, and laid him in a tomb. So having fulfilled the rejection of Jesus, the things predicted about him in a specific death, in his crucifixion specifically, which was not the common way that a Jew would put someone to death. It was how Romans would. But after his execution, it says they then buried him in a tomb. And so for three days, the body of the Lord Jesus lay clinically dead. And it seems something horrible had happened in humanity. It seems something catastrophic had happened. He'd been mistreated, the Son of God, brutally tortured, killed, and buried in a tomb and lay there as a dead body for three days, clinically dead. But verse 30 says, but God raised him from the dead. 
That is, God did the miraculous. He overcame the sinful actions of men and God powerfully brought Jesus back from among the realm of the dead. Jesus resurrected. There's Easter early, one week ahead of time. Doesn't mean you shouldn't come next week. It's an important fact to come celebrate. God raised him from the dead. God overcame the power of sin and hell and death and Jesus is now alive forevermore because God raised him back on our behalf. Verse 31, Paul says, and he was then seen for many days by those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and we are his witnesses to the people and we declare to you, he says, glad tidings that a promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled for us their children that in he has raised up Jesus. So Paul makes mention here, look, he says, these aren't just fanciful stories. He says in verse 30 there, Jesus was actually seen for over a month. There were eyewitnesses who saw him, many of whom were still alive to that day, right? If we had in court today in a judicial hearing, two or three eyewitnesses, okay? Two or three eyewitnesses that saw somebody shoot someone else on a street corner. I could say, I was an eyewitness. I was 20 yards away. I saw that guy shoot that guy. Easy conviction, right? There were hundreds of people in that day that were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord Jesus alive from the dead, many of who were still alive who were still testifying to that day. Look, it is true. We saw him with our own eyes. That's why Paul says there in verse 32 and 33, look, we have a message to declare glad tidings. We have good news, he says, to tell people that the promise God made in the prior generation of the fathers to send a savior, he's now fulfilled in our generation. And how did he fulfill that promise the way he did it? God fulfilled the promise, he says there, verse 33, in that he raised up Jesus from the dead. That's important because raising Jesus back from the dead after dying on the cross for our sins was the completion of the necessary plan of redemption to provide, listen, a living Savior. Jesus is not still hanging on a cross. Sad to see a cross with the body of Jesus still on it. He's not on a cross anymore. He died on a cross, but then he was buried. Jesus Christ is alive. He's living. And that's important. Hebrews 7 says he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That we can go to him and ask for his love and his forgiveness and his mercy and his power to help us in a personal way. Well, Paul's going to show how this life, death, and resurrection of the Lord was all a part of God's plan when it took place. He says, verse 33, going on, it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Psalm 2 predicted how God would allow his only begotten son to be given to people on earth by allowing him to be miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin to then be born as a man, that he might live as both God and man simultaneously at the same time on the earth being in touch with divinity and being in touch with humanity to be the mediator between the two to help us experience salvation so that's why god said prophetically of jesus you are my son you're my son the divine son of god and today i have 
begotten you. God says, I've given birth to your earthly life to serve as the Savior. He then goes on, verse 34, to quote from Isaiah 55, saying, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He's also spoken thus, Isaiah 55, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Again, born according to the family line of David, the mercies of David would be the promises given to David that the Messiah would receive a throne and a kingdom that would never end. And Jesus fulfilled that as he received that lineage from David. And then, of course, going on in verse 35, he then quotes as well, proving it from Psalm 16, saying, therefore, he also says in another Psalm, Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So predicting that God's Holy One would never see decay of his body or the corruption process. Psalm 16 spoke prophetically of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that though he would die physically, that his body would never experience corruption and decay because he would not remain dead ultimately. So verse 36, he says on that subject, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, a euphemism for death, the body is resting. And then he was buried with the fathers and David, he says, he, his body saw corruption. But he, verse 37, whom God raised up, saw no corruption. In other words, what Paul's pointing out there in Psalm 16, though David spoke these things himself as the human instrument in Psalm 16, he's saying there is no way David could have directly been referring to himself because he said David died after serving his own generation, he was buried and he says, David's body corrupted. It decomposed there in the tomb. So he says, this couldn't be speaking of David. It had to be speaking of another. And he says, the one it was speaking of, of course, was Jesus of Nazareth, verse 37, who God raised up. He saw no corruption. The life of Jesus was what was brought back from the dead in a fulfillment of scripture, verifying what? That Psalm 16 prophetically spoke of Jesus of Nazareth and his resurrection and how he would overcome the death process for us. Well, having proved the validity, the credibility of Jesus as the Savior, Paul then applies this in verse 38 and 39. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, talking about the Lord Jesus is preached to you the forgiveness of sins and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So in light of who Jesus is, God who came to live among us in human flesh, who never sinned so that he might present to God a perfect life that we can't as human beings, and then who provided salvation by dying in our place on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve for our sins as mankind, and then raising back from the dead to overcome sin and death's power and is alive today. Paul says, therefore, it is crucial that each person, he says, verse 38, know. He says, you must know. Each person must know, he says, that it is through this man not through anything else, no religious activity, no church. No, it's, it's through this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did what he did for us alone 
from him is the opportunity to receive forgiveness of sins and to be made righteous or justified before God. Listen, everybody needs the forgiveness of sin. The removal of our guilt before God because we all sin. We all make mistakes. I don't care how well we may think about ourselves. You're a failure. (laughs) We've all failed. We've thought, said, done things wrong and every human being from their first breath and the first time they're a selfish little stinky crying baby in their selfishness. Oh, it's true they're born that way. Raise a few. (laughs) We're sinful by nature. I never had to teach my children how to do what was wrong. They knew how to do what was wrong. They're born sinful. We're born fallen. We just prove it as we live out our lives and it makes us guilty before our God and we can't dismiss that. We can't dismiss the fact that, look, we are guilty. Too often, you know, even as Christians, we become so comfortable with the grace of God and the love of God and and we kind of lose the wonder of the reality that we are wretches who deserve the fire of hell. We need our sin forgiven by this holy, righteous God. And Jesus provides that for us completely, cleanses us. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. No matter what you have done, your stain is something that Jesus has removed if you've put your trust in him. And no matter what you've done, Jesus can cleanse you from it. He can remove it from your account, make you clean. If you simply acknowledge by faith what he has done for you, admitting you're sinful, receiving what he has done for you. And notice, not only does Jesus forgive our sin, but he says it's through Jesus that we can be justified, verse 39, from what the law of Moses can't justify us from. The word justified means to be declared innocent, declared righteous. So look, through Jesus, when you put your trust in him as Savior, he doesn't just forgive all your sin and wrongdoing and make you clean. He then justifies you by giving you all of his righteousness. And you receive all the righteousness of Christ into your account so that when God looks upon you, he doesn't look upon you in your relationship with Jesus as a sinful failure who's just been cleaned up. He looks at you in the same way he would look upon his own dear son, Jesus Christ, because he sees you in Christ, righteous. And you can relate to God knowing that you come to him with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the acceptance that God gives to us by our faith alone, by our faith alone, trusting Jesus. I believe you died for my sins and I believe you alone can make me righteous and right before God. And it's as we receive this reality It's something that changes the internal condition of our soul. Now, in light of those wonderful benefits and abundant grace, that's why Paul closes with a warning here in verse 40. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I will work a work in your days, a work which by no means believe, though one were to declare it, to you. So he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 1 saying, look, be careful, Paul says, that you don't fall prey to the same mistake that the people made that Habakkuk the prophet was speaking about. In a time of the people's sinfulness, God spoke to them. He told them he was going to do a powerful work in their midst, yet their dull hearts and unbelief did not receive it. They rejected it. They despised God's voice, though it was declared to them. They refused it. They didn't want to hear it. 
because they didn't like what God was saying. And sometimes people don't want to receive what God's saying because they don't like what God's saying. And so they chose not to believe though it was declared to them and the result of spurning God's grace and refusing to believe calls them, he says, verse 41, to be those who were about to perish. That's not good news. That means a destroyed and ruined life. And look, for all of us here this morning, let us be careful the same never come upon us, that we despise God's voice. Not listening to God in my life is a sure pathway to problemos and pain and mistakes. And you know what it comes from? I didn't listen to God because God's always faithful to speak to me. And not listening to God ultimately and blowing off even the need of hearing his voice telling you you need to be saved is ruining your eternal destiny. It's choosing to perish in hell ultimately. My question to you is this this morning. What has God been speaking to you recently? What's God speaking to you currently? How did Paul begin his sermon? Remember, it was like this. He waved his hands and he said, listen. Maybe God's exhortation for you or us this morning is God going, listen. 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 Would you stand with me? Let's pray together.